This is such a great example of, uh, that I could almost leave out my opening example in my sermon <clears throat> because, um, well, you'll hear. There, you just sang a song, first uh, popularized, first heard in the 60s, and um, I was thinking how absolutely relevant it is to our service today. And I had a similar experience um, several years ago. This is the example I wanted to share with you all. I was at a big gathering, the Institute of uh, Unitarian Universalist ministers and um, people of all generations. I'm kind of in the middle of my career. Um, so there were people who'd been at it for 20, 30 years bef before, uh, earlier and people who'd come up um, into seminary while I was already many years into ministry. Very interesting to be kind of in the middle there. Because um, the opening worship uh, featured uh, a woman, a minister of music, one of my colleagues, singing in a lovely stately way, a liturgical way, the 60s anthem, The Times They Are A-Changing. And um, this being a group of Unitarian Universalist ministers, you know, of course we love to uh, to have a friendly debate about what we're thinking, especially about a liturgical matter. So at the dinner that followed, there was a lot of conversation about how, whether that fit the moment that, that we were addressing. The Institute was very much focused on the future. We have all these new younger ministers. We have new people coming into our congregations. What do we want for the future? And here was this woman, about the same age, maybe a few years younger, as Bob Dylan himself, a baby boomer, in other words, singing this song that was very much uh, from her youth, um, from her adolescence, uh, to all of us. And some people said, God, we're talking about, you know, trying to create a new ministry, and where is the, you, you see, where is the UU Church going as a whole? And, and here we have uh, this song from 50 years ago, and this sort of power block of people who, who were leading then and are now, I hate to tell you, he wasn't 80 yet, but Bob Dylan is in, is in his 80s now, okay? Anybody fainted, we'll take care of you. So, um, and, um, and then I was thinking, uh, you know, maybe from my position as sort of between these uh, two generations, but also as a Dylan fan, I was thinking, you know, it all depends on how you hear the music. Was she singing, and are we supposed to hear this as, those were the good old days, remember the 60s, this is the best time, or were we supposed to be listening to the words, which are saying, the times, they are a-changing. The times, they are a-changing right now here in the 2010s, as they were, over 50 years ago when the song was first written. So I've been thinking about that a lot because, you know, if there's anything that we Unitarian Universalists can agree on, it's that the times keep a-changing, that we are trying to, to um, discover truths and keep rediscovering, not just cling to ones that served at a particular time, but keep well, like my alter ego said, being adaptive and responsive. And, um, and that can be a real challenge for each of us as, as we age and as we move through a different stage in our, in our responsibility to the community. And I asked her to speak about pronouns because that's kind of a, one of those cutting edge places where you really see um, 
ferment and sometimes tension between the generations. Because things change, and even things as fundamental as gender, which many of us were brought up to believe is one of those things that doesn't change, it always has. And there's a new generation of people who know that and can explain to you why and what it means. So, you know, I read to you, um, I read to you something from, from this book last week, and I want to do it again. Um, this uh, neuroscientist, Alison Gopnik, although what I'm sharing here isn't particularly neuroscience, she's really interested in this question. This is a book called The Gardener and the Carpenter. She's really interested in this question of, of um, why, in terms of biological evolution and cultural evolution, do we have such honkin' long childhoods? But we do. I mean, humans are very unusual. We have, as far as we know, the longest period of immaturity, dependence on, on our elders uh, of any animal species, um, which range all the way from, like, mama isn't even around when the babies hatch. They are on their own, literally, from day one. Um, to other species that do a fair amount of education, especially sort of tool-using species like ourselves, birds that she writes about that um, the, uh, they use tools, they use sticks to, to uh, poke into her termites', termites nests and get out what they want to eat, and then us, that we have decades, and it's only gotten longer, decades of time when we're having, um, when we're under the shelter of the older generation. Well, she says that there's a reason for that, and we see it in human culture, and it's that we pass on a tremendous amount of cultural knowledge. And that takes a really long time. And something else that takes a long time is having the freedom to innovate, try stuff out in a fairly low stakes environment before you're on your own. And you can see that with these birds and primates that, that use tools and poke into nests and everything. They get it wrong a lot, um, they try stuff out, and the adults kind of let them. And because the adults let them uh, poke the wrong end of the stick in and so on, and it's kind of low stakes, right? Because the adults are still there to feed them. They're not going to starve if they get it wrong because they're still in the shelter of, of uh, the older generation, just like a 10-year-old experimenting um, now, a 10-year-old human. So um, the great thing that happens when the younger generation has time to literally poke around is there's innovation. Now, younger people aren't the only people who do innovation. I'll be talking a little bit about that, but there's a lot of innovation that happens precisely because of this long period of, of sheltered experimentation. She writes, as each generation passes on information to the next, there will be a qualitative advance in the kinds of things they can do. Initially, small differences in social learning can rapidly snowball to make enormous differences in minds and lives. There is an interesting proviso here, though. We would never make any progress if each generation slavishly copied exactly what the previous generation did. At some point, and preferably at many points, someone in the new generation has to innovate, and other people have to work out that that innovator is the one to follow. Just how evolutionary forces, both biological and cultural, 
are best, uh, can best determine the balance between innovation and imitation is a really tricky question that we're only just starting to understand. Well, I have some thoughts about that. Um, so you know, the gist is there's something happening um, in multiple generations of people. And there's a balance there of innovation and then passing on things that we know. And the innovation can happen because each generation, in the old expression, stands on the shoulders of the ones before and has all this time to hear about how things are done. But it also means saying, you know what, maybe we'll do it differently from here on out. In other words, the older generations tend to excel at passing things on, the younger generations excel at trying on new stuff, and to put it yet more succinctly, um, it's each generation's job to really annoy each other. <laughs> There's bound to be tension, right? Because, you know, you're passing on what you know, and here's somebody saying, yeah, 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 but, oh, but how about this? And, and they want to innovate, and you want to, if you're older, pass it on, and if you're younger, you're chafing and saying, there's new ways to do things now, we have new technologies, there's a whole new slang, let me explain to you how things go. There's bound to be some tension. And I find it really helpful to see it like this, as, oh, these are both really necessary for our, our social, our cultural evolution. We know it from the development of technology, you know, and so many other, other things where the innovation does not always happen, of course, with the young. But if we did not allow people to say, okay, okay, this is how you taught me, but let me try it this new way. If we didn't make a space for that, we would just stay stuck. And if we didn't pass on what we knew, each generation of innovator would be starting from, from scratch. And that would be, we'd never get very far, right? So, of course, as I said, these are huge generalizations. Adults and, young, and old people innovate. Um, young people can be extremely conservative and just want to carry forward what they were taught by their families. And innovations that begin with youth don't always stay there. She gives an example that I really like um, that, uh, because I didn't know this research. Um, you, may have re you may remember when upspeak was really, really annoying a lot of people of the older generation. Uh, it was particularly um, younger women, teenage women, made famous um, in Valley Girl, a hit uh, when I was a teenager, and that's how old I am. So you say, and how old are you, Amy? I say, uh, 53, right? I do that upspeak as if it's a question. Right? And this can drive people a little nuts. Like, why are you saying everything as it's a question? That seems to mean, you know, how, show, show how insecure you are. Just say it. 53, you know? Well, Gopnik says the research shows that while that may have started, as far as we can tell, that did start with teenage females in our culture, it is now the older, more authoritative person in a conversation who is likely to use upspeak. For example, when a supervisor and supervisee are speaking, it's the supervisor who tends to say, huh, at the end of statements, and the supervisee who tends to say it out loud, low. Maybe that's because the supervisors have picked up on, hey, this is a way of giving a little gentleness to a statement and not putting it just down like that. If I put a little question, it kind of opens up space for my supervisor to say something as if I'm asking them a question, and then they say yes. 
Who knows? But in any case, it started with the youth, but it's not there anymore. The fact is, the more authoritative somebody is in a conversation, the more likely they are to use upspeak, according to some of these studies. I also just notice a lot of things like the way slang tends to start out with young people and then move to, well, it's not slang anymore. It's used by everybody, um, by the older folks. Like, I keep hearing people older than myself say 24-7, 24-7, 365. That was cutting edge when I was a teenager. <laughs> not anymore, but don't worry, the teenagers will come up with something new. So, you know, this tension, though, it creates an interesting question. And I think, again, about the pronouns, right? We have this younger generation that's saying, you know, you went and taught me to experiment with gender, to say don't accept the old gender roles. You learned that the gender roles were too rigid. And you said, you know what? You can do this even if you're a girl. You can do that even if you're a boy. And here I am, a generation innovating, as generations do, younger people do, I'm saying, but what about this whole gender thing anyway? What if I'm not a boy or a girl? What if neither one of those things seems to fit for me? So what is the older generation supposed to do now? Well, according to this theory, this evolutionary theory, the job is to create a safe space for that innovation, to say, mm, OK, you, you try things out. Try this, try that. You know, Some things will settle in. Um, and you know, when it comes to, say, a religious community where people come in uh, using these different pronouns or talking about gender in a completely different way, that means listening, giving love, giving support, and, of course, using the language people want used for themselves. But I like models, and so I was thinking particularly of one of my models in this way, a role model for all of us. First of all, he's... Um, is or would have been, uh, if he were still alive, older than almost anybody here. He died a few years ago. Um, second, he's a Unitarian. And I'm thinking of Pete Seeger. So Pete Seeger was a model, a role model for people like Bob Dylan, the people a few years younger than him, the baby boomers, who were trying to innovate. They were trying to find other ways of doing things in this culture that they had inherited, right? That you had inherited, some of you, who really did the rabble-rousing. Well, Pete Seeger was, uh, he would go around to colleges. He would speak to young people. He was a model. He encouraged them in this experimentation. He said, you know, you are right to be questioning our policy in Vietnam. You are right to be act an activist for civil rights. And he literally provided a song list for this time of ferment. If I had a hammer, and where have all the flowers gone? And he was one of the people who, who shaped um, this, this new song into We Shall Overcome. That this, this man of a lot of privilege, he was white and male and went to prep schools for heaven's sakes, uh, he gave some words that became one of the anthems of the civil rights movement. So, all of this happens in an interesting um, generational context, which is Pete Seeger was not a boomer. He was not a young person in the civil rights movement, in the anti-war movement, in the feminist movement of the 60s. He was born in 1919. And that means that 
that year that people marched from Selma to Montgomery, the year that the Vietnam War began to really get escalated, he was 46 years old. He was way beyond that age of 30 after which you should trust nobody. Now, so that says a lot um, about the people who were listening to him. A lot to their credit that they said, oh, this guy, this old guy has some wisdom to teach us. From his radical days, from things he learned in the 30s and 40s, before he went and enlisted in World War II, that's the generation that he was. Um, and there's also a lot of credit to old Pete. Because, you know, I just think, born in 1919, he must have sometimes been somewhat bewildered, exasperated by the particular forms of radicalism that these young people, his mentees of his, were, um, were taking. He must have sometimes wondered, I don't, I don't know about what they're doing. These innovations are not the innovations that we were doing back in the 30s, you know. But he, he recognized the times are a-changing. I'm not here to make the 60s like the 30s and 40s. I'm here to help these young people lead us forward. And so he said, here's some music, some new music. Here's some old music that you may still find inspiring. And, and here's the encouragement to keep on adapting and responding to our changing times because our society is still broken. It still needs help. That was true when he was a young rabble-rouser in the 40s. It was true in the 60s. It was true in the, in the 80s when I was a teenager. It's true now, and it'll be true when Generation Z is getting gray. Until we perfect everything. So I'm just thinking, since I'm talking to a, a group of people, mostly in an older generation, Something we can do is be the Pete Seeger that people need now. How can we encourage people to have that attitude? To say, the times are still a-changing. And we cheer you on as you innovate. And here's some of that cultural knowledge that we can give to you. We know you won't accept it all, but it'll help you keep from creating things from scratch. That would help us be the kind of religious community that we, that we do so well. It says things keep changing, and they're always going to keep changing. And people 50 years from now will realize, oh my goodness, how could they not see things about us now, just as some of you wonderful people here were cutting edge and are still cutting edge for our times. So may it be. <laughs>